All right, so here's what I want to say off of that. There is a lot to like about this movie. A lot happens in it, as we say. There is, uh, there's murder, there is intrigue, there's deception, there's seduction. But overall, Shannon, I think you and I can agree on the single most important aspect of this movie, <laughs> the most exciting aspect of this movie, and that's Willem fucking Dafoe, baby. He's back. Let's go. Willem Nation, rise up. Let's go. Yeah, I I saw here on our notes, we have like the list of the starring characters <laughs> and it's just hearts, Willem, hearts. Like, <laughs> yeah, I put the floating boy. heart emojis around there. Oh, yeah, we love him. And Pretty, he's back. He's yeah. back, baby. Oh, you gotta love it. All right, let's let's roll the tape. the theme music and hello hello and welcome to skeleton closet a podcast at the intersection of queerness of willem and, and willem <laughs> at the intersection of willem and defoe <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i'm shannon and i'm jake uh this week we are watching uh nightmare alley from 2021 um, this is a movie directed by Guillermo del Toro, starring Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, Tony Collette, Willem, and Ron Perlman. Like, absolutely star-studded cast here. Um, and yeah. I gotta say, like, this is my second time watching the movie uh, for the purposes of this podcast. And I told you before we started recording, I, I think this has to be one of my favorite movies, like, hands down, all time. I love it so much. Like, what... Like, what about the movie makes you love it so much? Like, like I, I see the appeal, but, like, what what are those, like, like, yeah, what what makes you love it, like, this much? Oh, my God. Okay, uh, there's a lot. Like, I think it visually is very appealing and stunning. Like, it, mm. it looks great right from, right off the jump. Uh, all the performances are terrific. Like, Bradley Cooper and Kate Blanchett, especially, like... I was saying, I can't remember if it was in the show last week or if I said it to you off mic, but I think Bradley Cooper is sometimes kind of like, uh, not typecast, but people kind of consider him as like, you know, he's like a sort of average leading man type dude. Like he can just sort of yeah. play handsome dude bro roles. And I don't, <laughs> I don't think people give enough respect to his actual acting chops, which we see in this movie. Um, we see Ooh, several yeah. different phases of this character's life in this movie. So there, there's kind of like three or four different versions of him. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you can really see like the difference in, in all of them and the way that they each sort of carry themselves differently. Uh, and Kate Blanchett as well is like uh, amazing oh, and compelling amazing. in everything that she's in. If anyone has seen Tar lately, um, that one's going to be up for Oscars this year. She should probably stab someone if she doesn't win best uh, leading actress this year. Um, so I, I don't know. Everything comes together. Guillermo del Toro is one of my favorite, like creative people, uh, like let alone mm -hmm. film directors. Um, all the performances are great. It looks great. Like I said, and the story is just really compelling to me. I love like a sort of classic rise and fall type story. I love hubris. I love mm -hmm. fate. I love the grift. I love the noir aesthetic to it. Like it's very much, it's based on a, 
1946 novel and its 1947 film adaptation. So it's very noir. Like everyone talks all fast and they've got all this cool slang that you've never heard before. They're like, hey, are you are you on the level? Don't get wise, Jack. Something like that. They've all got like yes. clever ways of saying, like Ron Perlman's not just going to be like, I'm going to beat you up. He's like, I got five good pounds of meat and bone right here. <laughs> and you just know what he means by that. So I... Mm-hmm. I love it. I could talk about it for hours. And I I think that's why it's great to have a podcast where you can talk about things for as long as you want. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, what are your, what were your uh, overall thoughts? So I, this, this movie did not go where I expected. Like not, right? not in the least. Like <laughs> I, so I had, I'd never seen it before. I'd never heard about it before. Yeah. Um, and you literally told me you were like, it's about a carny. And that's all you want to know. Don't look <laughs> up anything. And yeah. I was like, okay, 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 cool. Cool, cool, cool. And I, I was so pleasantly surprised by it. Like, I definitely had, like, I, I, I'm definitely one of the people who, like, typecasted Bradley Cooper as being like, Oh, he's just like a handsome leading actor and like I kind of expected like the greatest showman, you know, mm. like I I expected that of him. But I I loved the levels that it gave in this movie where you got to see Bradley Cooper like starting out as this like very quiet, like understated, like mm-hmm. eager character and you know he grows and grows and like grows into his hubris mm-hmm. um and you know becomes this like very successful like famous uh, you know uh guy and then eventually to see him fall again oh woof i was not expecting that like i like i really didn't know where this movie would go you know i was like okay where like where's this tragic flaw gonna come in right and i just like by the time i got to the end of the movie i was like okay this is all gonna come around because like i was wondering like you know when like bradley cooper's doing really well you know his mysticism act is like (laughs) you know, really drawing in the crowds and stuff. I was thinking, and I'm like, oh, man, but, like, why did they, like, if this is the direction the story is going, why did they, like, focus so much on, like, the seedy underbelly of, like, the carnival at the beginning, like, this geek character? Like, wh- what the hell was that about? <laughs> and then having that all come, like, full circle at the end of the movie, I was like, no, no no way he's gonna oh yeah yeah and he did and he did so i uh, that like it like i was reading some of the like reviews of this and Mm. they were saying it's it's a relatively simple story yeah like it, it like it's exactly that it is this guy's like starting from the bottom rise to fame and then fall like that is the story and it is just so well told it is so captivating Mm -hmm. and like i love how all of the characters have their own like unique motivations that really clash with each other at points especially toward the end of the movie like it 
it was a very well told story and it was stylish. Oh God, this was a fucking stylish movie. Like Jesus Christ. Like I know like, and, and this, like, this is like uh, an outlier for Guillermo del Toro. Like, like Guillermo, like almost like all of his movies are about supernatural stuff. Yeah. This is the only non-supernatural one. And it was beautiful. I loved it. I love that. I think a lot of the time in stories like this one where there's sort of like eh, magic at play, but not really. Um, there's yeah. almost always a hint of like, hmm, but what are the supernatural forces at play here? And sort of that like mm-hmm. um, that Macbeth phenomenon, right? Of just like, is the magic real? Is it a is it a lie the whole time? Um, and this one really doesn't go there. There's, there's never really any doubt that everyone is lying about the magic that, that, (laughs) um, exists slash doesn't exist in this story. Um, other than maybe Enoch, there's, there's one element of the story that maybe pretends something else going on here, but that's not so relevant that it would really weigh on the rest of the story, you know? Um, yeah, I, I love that too. There there's these moments that, you know, like you say, it's it's kind of a departure for Guillermo. It's, it's not super typically his stuff. But then there's these elements like, oh, of course, there's going to be a pickled th- fetus with three eyes because Guillermo can't <laughs> resist, resist putting a fucked up creature in his <laughs> in his movie. Um, it's, yes. It's simply not going to be a Guillermo picture if there's not some sort of fucked up creature or being uh, <laughs> around the fringes. Um I I love it, and we'll we'll get more into talking about the themes and things, but uh, we might as well crack open a, a summary of the plot for those who didn't watch it along with us. All right, excellent. We open very abruptly on a decrepit old house in 1939. A man who the audience will recognize as Bradley Cooper is dragging a body wrapped in burlap into a hole in the floorboards. Then he sets the house on fire and walks away. Wonder what that's about. Anyway, (laughs) this man then gets on a bus out of town and falls asleep, waking up at an all-night rest stop, which happens to be adjacent to the current site of a traveling carnival. He decides to check it out and comes across an attraction featuring something called a geek, a half-man half beast who is made to live in a cage while people pay a quarter to watch it bite off the head of a chicken. Seriously, it's gnarly. (laughs) A carny offers our protagonist a dollar if he helps deconstruct the site. And after he does, he decides to stick around and help the carnies with odd jobs. We come to learn that our man's name is Carlisle Stanton. And he soon takes a shine to Molly, one of the carnival performers. Carlisle Stanton has to be one of, like, the most badass names I've ever seen for, like, a main character in a movie, too. Like, it's not too much. It's not like his name is, like, Chaz Blade or something like that. But it's just so, (laughs) it's cool. It's stylish, as you said. I like it. It really fits the the noir of it all. Um, Carlisle, he he also goes by Stan. Uh, We kind of use that name interchangeably in here. So Carlisle, Stanton, Stan, all the same guy. Uh, He also befriends Madame Zena and her husband, Pete, who perform in the carnival's headline mentalist act. Although Pete doesn't really perform that much anymore, he pretty much just gets drunk and screws up the act. Uh, Stanton convinces Pete to help teach him how to do mentalism, but Pete warns him that this act can be a dangerous game. 
He warns against two things, doing a spook show, meaning convincing people you can commune with the dead, and getting shut-eye, or the belief that you actually have the mental powers. One night, when Pete asks Stan to help procure him a bottle of liquor, Stan accidentally gets him a bottle of wood alcohol instead, which is poison to people. Um, Pete is found dead the next morning, and Stan takes his book of mentalism tricks. Clem, the carnival's owner, and Willem Dafoe, also teaches Stan how to break in a geek. You find a homeless alcoholic, offer him alcohol in order to perform as a fake geek temporarily, then spike his drinks with opium and hold out on him until he geeks out for real. Fucking terrible. You know what? I, I forgot. I wrote the uh, summary this time, and Shannon does a much better job of it than me. Um, I forgot to mention <laughs> they had a geek at the show, the original one. He escapes on the first night. Uh, Stan helps track him down and conks him on the head with a little club. And uh, he like the wound goes bad. It's like rotten and gangrene. And they pretty much leave him for dead in an alley. So they have to go out and find mm. a new geek, which Willem can break in. Yes, and that's why Willem is explaining this is how you break in a geek. And that's that right. was that was a pretty dark scene. Like they're sitting in a diner, you know, eating some food, and he's <laughs> yeah. like, Now here's how you do it. Like this this is exactly how you break in a new geek. And like goes through the detailed thing of this is exactly what you say to him. This yep. is how you play it. Boom bam. And he is very casually describing how someone will uh, start to consider going through like withdrawals from the addiction that you've given them and will decide that being a geek is worth their humanity in this case because uh, mm. they don't want to go through that, which is a, a truly horrifying thing to des describe. And uh, Stan just sort of reacts. He, he's sort of horrified by it, but in an understated way, he just says, poor soul. And then we move on. Yeah. Soon after, the police raid the circus, having been ticked, tipped off about the Geek Act, which is a violation of, like, so many laws. <laughs> Stan intervenes and uses his mentalism techniques on the police marshal, noticing aspects of his appearance to determine facts about his life, to spook him and convince him to stop the raid. He is heralded as a hero and hot with confidence in his ability to swindle. Stan convinces Molly to run away with him and to start up a mentalism act of their own. They pack up a truck and take off to see the world and everything in it. <laughs> Two years later, Stan and Molly have found success. They host a twice nightly show at the Copacabana in New York. And if their apartment is anything to go by, they are now swimming in cash. But there's been a change in Carlisle. He talks down to Molly, he doesn't respect his audience, and really he's become sort of a dick. Uh, one night, a woman disrupts his show and tries to expose the tricks he and Molly use on stage, but he manages to regain stability by reading her so hard he tells her she wants to kill herself in front of the entire audience. We <laughs> later find out that her name is Dr. Lilith Ritter, and she is a psychologist under the employ of the wealthy Judge Kimball. Kimball was transfixed by the show and convinced that Carlisle really has magic powers, offers him a large sum of money if he will help him and his wife commune with their son, who died in World War II. Carlisle agrees against the wishes of Molly and develops a fixation on Dr. Ritter. Carlisle convinces Dr. Ritter, 
Ritter to help him with his scheme by giving him details about Kimball from her sessions with him as a psychologist. But not in exchange for money. No. She only wants Stan's honesty. She convinces him to speak to her about his past, and through these sessions we learn that his father was a neglectful alcoholic, which is why Stan never drinks, and that his stepfather was a preacher who he did not respect for his dishonesty. We also learn that the body from the beginning of the movie was that of Stan's sickly father, whom he allowed to die while he watched. He goes on to swindle Mrs. Kimball, telling her that her son is content in heaven and that she and her husband will see him again one day. This is one of those things that I didn't think about until I was writing the the summary, but those scenes come so close together where he's talking about how his stepdad is this preacher and he, he can't believe how this man stomachs all the lies he tells to these people. Um, and then he mm. pretty much immediately goes and tells a woman that he talked to her son who's in heaven uh, for money. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, his his yeah, hypocrisy it, really like, shows even through his, his charm, you know, because he's a very, like, dashing... Uh, man in this phase of his life he's just such an asshole well i mean i find it interesting that like stan's stepfather was a preacher and that like he had so much disdain for him when coming to the end of the movie stan was like oh yeah what i'm doing for these guys is the same thing that a preacher does for his like Mm -hmm. you know congregation and like compares himself to a preacher and i'm like bitch you yeah like when dr ritter reads him and she's like "Ooh, you have daddy issues she was fucking spot on stan has not only like regular daddy issues no no no. he also has step daddy issues Mm. i love when she calls him out because i believe the words that she uses are something to the effect of you have a peculiar relationship with older men and he kind of just gets agitated he just kind of shakes that off awesome um due to kimball's satisfaction with carlisle's work he gets him in touch with another wealthy friend of his ezra grindle who wants to communicate with his dead lover from 40 years ago ritter tells us that grindle forced this woman dory to have an abortion and that she died in the process Ritter warns Stan that Grindel has been unstable and unpredictable since then and refuses to help him further. But Carlisle pushes on and decides to steal recorded tapes of Grindel's therapy sessions from Ritter's office. Grindel believes in Stan's power, but grows impatient quickly and threatens violence if he's not able to see Dory soon. Oh, also, meanwhile, Mrs. Kimball decides to um, expedite (laughs) the process of seeing her son again by murder-suiciding herself and her husband. Yeah, that that was one of the scenes where I was like, what, 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 <laughs> yeah. wait, wait, wait a minute, what? <laughs> it's it's one of those ones where you kind of just slowly realize what's about to happen. She's sitting there and she's like got her little cup of tea and she's like, you know how he said that we would see him again in heaven one day? And her husband's just like, yes, dear. And she just sort of smiles, <laughs> wordlessly pulls out a gun and ices her husband and then herself. Like it seems like just such a pleasant scene. And then it just, you're like, Oh shit. It just goes sour very quickly. Yeah. Yep. And this, this is why spiritualism is dangerous. (laughs) It's almost as if Pete warned him against doing this type of thing right before Stan killed him. 
Hmm, <laughs> yeah, I wonder. <laughs> now, Carlisle convinces Molly to help him with his ruse by dressing up as Dory, but she's deeply uncomfortable with the plan. She warns him beforehand that he has gone too far, and after this, she will not help him anymore. With that, they're ready to show Grindel what he wanted, an apparition of his dead lover. But the plan goes about as badly as possible. <laughs> right before Dory is revealed, Grindel tells Stan that in his grief over Dory, he has hurt a lot of young women in the last 40 years that reminded him of her. Stan is horrified. But before he can respond, Molly appears in her Dory costume. Grindel is overcome with emotion and grabs onto her, but quickly realizes that he's been had. Carlisle kills Grindel and his bodyguard and escapes with Molly, who leaves him behind as soon as he starts trying to formulate another lie to get away with it. He goes to Ritter's office, where she urges him to take the money and run, until he checks the bag and realizes she's taken his money. She's re replaced all of his 50s and 100s with singles. Uh, she begins recording him and reveals that she intends to frame him as a delusional madman, obscuring her, her part in the plot gone wrong. He flees her office and runs off into the night. Carlisle later finds himself homeless and riding the rails. He has become an alcoholic and eventually goes to try to find work at a traveling carnival again. He happens upon a carnival that owns some relics from Clem's now folded ten in one, including a three-eyed pickled fetus in a jar named Enoch, and a radio that Stan sold to Clem on his first night. The carnival owner tells Carlisle that he doesn't hire alcoholics and to get lost. But on second thought, there is one job, and it's only temporary. It's just in fine w until we find a real geek. When the owner asks Carlisle if he'd be up for it, he responds with, Mister, I was born for it. And, like, that last shot, like, that's how the movie ends. So we understand that he, like, again, he starts from the bottom, rises to the top, falls down through the bottom of the floor of the bottom. Like, he is... He is yeah. now going to be the geek in the future, which, as we know, things don't tend to end well for the geek. And he goes through this, like, he answers the question in this way where maybe he's he finds it funny and he starts laughing. And then his laughing turns into crying. And then the crying turns back into laughing. And then it's sort of both and neither at the same time. And holy shit, Bradley Cooper, take a bow. That was... That was unreal. That's I, I sometimes look up this scene on YouTube just to watch it. Cause, <laughs> and if you if you didn't watch the movie, if you you know can't stomach horror or whatever it is, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> but um, <laughs> if you didn't watch the movie, do yourself a favor. Just go look up the last scene and watch what Bradley Cooper does with his face because it's unreal. It is brilliant. It reminds me of... The end credit scene of Pearl when yes. Pearl is just standing there smiling and the smile turns manic and she's crying and she's straining her face and her like eyes are going bloodshot like it it gives me very much like similar vibes of like that craziness setting in. You're so right and 
Yeah, like the way you can see actual tears starting to come out and everything. This man is going mm. through the entire cycle of delusional, like, he's, I think he's laughing at his own misfortune. He's in on the joke in some way. He can see how far he's fallen. Yeah. He knows what happens to geeks. He killed one already. Um, and then also he is finding himself a position. He's getting out of his life on the streets. This is surely better than nothing, but he knows it's not. So there's this this relief and this horror and this delirium and all of it just comes together in this moment. And I don't know how long that shot is, but it feels like it's a minute or so. Uh, yeah. Just so very good. At least they didn't roll the credits over his face like they did to, <laughs> to yes. poor Mia, Mia Goth, because that was, that was poor brutal. Poor Mia Goth. Yeah. Yeah, I I really like the sense of dread like sets in during that conversation when he's talking to this carnival owner and the guy starts saying the exact same words that Clem had taught to Stan like earlier in the movie. Yeah. And like it I did not expect his you know response mister i was born for it you know i was like oh like he he'll get out of there like he'll <laughs> he'll leave no. yeah but no no i guess he's like resigned to his fate of like i guess like mentalism is you know it's out of popularity like this circus owner does not like mentalism as an act like, that's true yeah mentalism is 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 out of fashion you know, but you know what never goes out of fashion? Torturing people. Mm-hmm. Mm. Funny mm -hmm. how that works. And I mean, I think the ending of the movie leads us right into uh, the first point that I wanted to discuss. And I think a major theme of the movie, which is exploitation, right? Like, as as you said, torturing oh, people yes. never goes out of style. Um, and I, like, I wanted to talk about the tragedy of the geek, because that is... That's where he ends up, right? He is going to be a future geek after the credits roll. Um, and the geek is really more than just a character in this movie. It's an archetype. Um, we see three geeks. We see the first one who uh, Stan kills. We see the second one that uh, Clem is breaking in. And we know that there are many more. We know that Clem has done this before. We're going to assume that this new carnival owner has done this before. Uh, so Bradley is just one in a in a long line of geeks. Um, I, I found that watching this movie the second time is really intensely rewarding because it yeah. encourages you to pay attention to the story of the first and second geeks because in a way it can be seen as the fate of our protagonist, right? The, the second geek being broken in is likely what comes next for Stan, and the first geek being left for dead in an alley is more than likely how his story will end. Um, yeah. So it, it really comes full circle on a second watch, and it's one of, the, one of the many ways that I think this movie is really well made. Yeah, I think, I think the geek is fascinating because, like, it's a well-known phenomenon, Mm -hmm. And it is so well known that it's illegal, you know, and attracts the attention of the police. And the carnival, like, was prepared for that. So they were like, <laughs> yeah. the police are here, hide the banners, and, like, over the geek banner, the, like, they unfurled a banner on top of it that was, like, about a lamb or something. And, <laughs> yeah. like, like, they were fully, 
fully prepared to like hide this illegal act. They had infrastructure in place to hide it from the authorities. Yeah. (laughs) Very premeditated. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And like, this is so like what, what we know, like carnivals for today is probably like the animal abuse, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we get from like Dumbo and stuff, but like the history of carnivals is really fucking dark because it's all about the abuse of people right and as like these people like were not seen as like human beings who have human rights like the carnival is a place for human beings who are not seen as people who are seen as lesser than and who are seen as not being able to function anywhere else in society and that's why we have our freak shows right the freak show was a way for anyone who looked different to be able to you know fulfill those basic needs of Mm -hmm. you know shelter and food right so it is it is a show that comes out of desperation and i i honestly had never heard of the geek before watching this movie um but I know they would always have a kind of like, is he man or is he beast? Like that, that yeah. has always been a popular attraction. Um, and I should have done a little more research to see about like geeking in history. But it gets me thinking um, about, you know, the term geek, right? Because that's like a stereotype for, you know, like high schoolers now is, you know, the the geeks, the freaks, the popular kids and whatnot. And I think this like, you know, archetypal demonstration of the geek really does like the carnival geek does fit with the role that the geek plays in like a high school social system, right? They are the weirdo, you know, the one who is desperate, uh, who will do anything for the attention of, you know, the the people that are around. And the geek is very much like the punching bag. You yeah. know, like the lowest on the rung, the final joke. And I I have much more of an appreciation now for uh like the history of bullying geeks. Uh because like this mm. really does show that like like you aren't born a geek. No, no, no. You are made into a geek. Yeah. Well, and okay. So you, you know, you said you, you didn't know the history and not that we did real research on this, but I just opened up the Wikipedia (laughs) page on geek show. It it is literally exactly as described in the movie. Uh, geek shows were often used as openers at geek shows. Um, Single geeks stood in the center of the ring to chase live chickens. It ended with the performer biting the chickens' heads off and swallowing them. Uh, Geeks were often alcoholics or drug addicts and paid with liquor or with narcotics. Um, It is literally exactly as portrayed in the movie, this actually happened, which I I actually wasn't even aware of before we started talking. So, (laughs) yeah, that's that's a real thing. That happened. Um, And I mean, like, yeah, we... The aspect of the freak show, I think, is so interesting. And, you know, we're 
we always say this. We already name a, a queer horror podcast and not all of the things we talk about are explicitly queer, right? But I think that this really ties in because like the idea of a freak show ties into the idea of deviance, which is so like tied yes. up in just in queer identity in general. Um, and I'm really fascinated by the idea of a freak show because it's the confluence of a lot of different things. It's marginalization, it's exploitation, and it's self-empowerment in a way, if you yeah. can swing it, if you can get to that place. Like some people find themselves in the position of the geek where they're they're being taken advantage of when you're already at a low point and your humanity is stripped away and you are truly exploited. Like you are no longer a person in the eyes of... Um, the owner of the carnival or the audience or what have you. However, if you find yourself in the position of someone like Xena or Major, who is um, a little person who finds himself performing in the carnival, and I wouldn't necessarily call that empowerment, but he is using his difference as a way to keep him. He, to be clear to anyone who didn't see the movie, the rest of the carnies are not kept in like, awful conditions like this you know they have a bunk and they travel with the carnival and they get their meals and whatever and it seems like they make a wage so these people are able to carve out a living in a community for themselves uh using their their nature and their differences as an outcast um to, to sort of carve out a life for themselves but all the while even like just when mm. um carlisle and pete are having this conversation about how to refine their mentalist act they can hear the geek screaming in the background as a fellow freak is is broken in and made to be exploited uh, by the worst. And there, there's nothing to say that any of these people can't become a geek later on, right? Bruno yeah. could turn out that way, or Major could turn out that way. We don't know if they if they don't have a use for you. What's to stop them from from just yeah. turning you into the next geek? Well, I think I think that's the lesson, right? Yeah. You know, is that. In this freak show and carnival, right, there there is a hierarchy. And as long as you're not at the lowest rung of that hierarchy, you're doing pretty okay. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of that idea of there's always someone who has it worse than you do. So you're doing pretty okay. And honestly, I think uh, what we see... So, yeah, what we see is I think Pete, who teaches Stan his mentalist act, Pete is honestly the most likely one who was on his way to becoming a geek. Yeah. Because he was an alcoholic who was messing up Xena's mentalist show and her, like, psychic show or whatever, and Stan had to, like, take over for Pete to, like, help save the show. Um, and we don't know what would have happened to Pete if Stan hadn't poisoned him. So I think like it, it just like, it just boggles you yeah. that like Stan even like, like he like that he would follow this path knowing how things could turn out. Right. Mm -hmm. Like Stan, when he first arrives at the carnival, he's sleeping on a mattress in the same room where the geek is being caged. So like he is the most intimately personal, like understanding of what the geek is going through in his like day to day existence. Mm -hmm. So like from the very beginning of encountering this carnival, Stan knows 
what the worst case scenario is of being part of the carnival. Then Stan goes on to meet Pete. Pete, who is our retired mentalist, who is a useless alcoholic who, like, hates his old act and passes it on. And you would think that Stan might look at Pete and go, oh, this guy was a successful mentalist, and look how he's turned out. Mm. A raging alcoholic who can barely function. You know what would be a good idea? Learning his act from him and following in his footsteps. <laughs> mm. Well, what I think is interesting about it too, and, uh, you know, I, I think that Stan probably sees himself as exempt because he doesn't drink. And we, we learned that he doesn't drink yes. because his father was an alcoholic, so he never drinks, capital N, never, um, until mm-hmm. much later on in the movie and years down the line from, from his interactions with Pete. Um, so he... You know, he probably thinks himself exempt. He probably thinks he cannot become a geek because um, Clem tells him, you know, you got to pick up a real two-bottle-a-day alky, someone who's completely yeah. hopeless. Um, and because he sees, he doesn't see that future for himself because he never drinks, uh, maybe he doesn't necessarily see the danger in that happening to himself. And maybe that's one way that I think the politics of the 1940s you know, noir prohibition era kind of comes through is that becoming the geek is sort of seen as the result of vice of, of, um, you know, hubris and alcoholism and all of these sorts of things yeah. where sometimes turning out as, uh, you know, the bottom of the ladder, the bottom rung of the ladder, as you said, it doesn't necessarily entail fault of one's own. Right. I think like in a, in a, yes, like, democratic view of the world or, or a view of the world with any humanity whatsoever. It's not necessarily just through like hubris and greed and, and malfeasance that someone becomes, uh, that, that, you know, down on their luck. Um, but it just shows that any, it does show that anyone is, uh, has the potential to be exploited and in a, in a way that is completely subhuman. And like, this is what I was getting at with the point of, you know, the theme of exploitation in this movie is the movie shows that all of its characters are marks. Anyone can be swindled and anyone can be exploited. Um, Carlisle cons many people, pretty much everyone he meets. Um, the audiences of the, the carnival and the Copacabana, um, Molly, the police marshal, Dr. Ritter, he swindles her at first, but she gets him back later on. Uh, the Kimballs... <laughs> Uh, Ezra Grindle and debatably Pete. We we don't really know if he purposely poisoned him or not, but I, oh, that I was think totally on purpose. You think so? I think it was genuinely an accident. I think like the movie kind of goes to lengths to have him really vehemently establish that he believes it was an accident two years later on. But uh... how much do we really believe this guy? Is that me as an audience member being swindled by this man who makes his living swindling everyone Ooh. else? Right? I don't know. But in the end, he himself is swindled by Dr. Ritter and the new carnival owner. So, and in a dark sense, kind of his new owner, if you think about it. So, um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I love I love the theme of exploitation. And 
I do think that the theme is that, yeah, anyone can be conned and swindled and exploited and your humanity can be stripped away from you. And maybe that the system that allows humanity to be stripped from anyone is the problem. But I also like I hear the um, the criticism that maybe it seems like exploitation comes from vice and and uh, poor behavior. I don't know. I think it's really interesting theme wise, though. Yeah, I think I think the like key difference is that it's not like yes, there is like you know drinking is a vice, but it's also an addiction, yeah. right? And the geek is an addict, like that. It's never quite said that way in the movie, but like the geek is an addict, and like the whole thing is like what lengths will this person go to to maintain their addiction? And it's something as you like, it's something, as you said, outside of their control. Mm -hmm. So the geek really is a victim of circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And one thing, one thing I find so fucking ironic. So the reason that uh, Stan Carlisle is able to have his fall in the movie is all because he gets tangled with Dr. Ritter. And she, like, totally fixates on this, like, I never drink, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, I I find it so ironic that Dr. Ritter is a psychologist and mm-hmm. she is supposed to help people And the entire goal of her profession is to help people through psychoanalysis and through talking things out. You know, she takes the oath of malfeasance. I think that's what it is to like do no harm and to do the Hippocratic oath. Yeah. The Hippocratic oath. There we go. Yeah. (laughs) And I find it so ironic that Dr. Ritter is the reason that Stan starts to drink. Mm-hmm. And the moment Stan takes that drink is when things really start to go downhill for him. Like he crosses a line before then when he takes the deal with um Kimball. What's his name? Kimball, yes. Like he crosses the line first when he takes the deal with Kimball to do the private reading for him and his wife. But I think his like ultimate downfall like maybe the second step of his downfall or the second line he crosses is when he takes that drink of whiskey from dr ritter and like it it fucking rips at me because like dr ritter knows exactly what she is doing like Mm -hmm. (laughs) she takes advantage of this man gives him the information that he wants you know all in all in return for quote-unquote honesty but what she really wanted was to dig through his trauma for fun and then turn it back on him to find a way to exploit him yeah yeah i mean what she does to him is literally just the classic like peer pressure like he says i never drink and she like yeah like you said she latches onto that like a like a dog like a german shepherd she just latches on she's like oh there's that word never again you use that you don't say oh no thank you you say i never drink and so what's that about and so she 
She latches on and she gets at the root of why he never drinks and finds out that it's because alcoholism runs in his family and he's seen the negative effects of it. And then she goads him into taking a drink and consistently like drinks in front of him. Um, mm-hmm. Puts him in a mood like she peer pressures him. She does what teenagers do uh, and she gets oh, him yeah. to take that first drink, which he never does. And that is the the start the first you know uh the first slip on the slippery slope unfortunately for well fortunately or unfortunately for our guy it's unfortunately it doesn't benefit anyone it is unfortunate yeah yeah (laughs) he is an asshole but we don't like i guess we shouldn't wish on his downfall (laughs) yes yes he he's human too you know Hmm. but like um Dr. Ritter points out, she's like, oh, by saying you never take a drink, you've made this a point of pride. And so we see pride and hubris going hand in hand, right? The pride, like hubris is pride, right? Excessive pride. Yeah. And those who are prideful enough believe themselves above the folly of other human men. And what I see... um, what I see is Dr. Ritter is just like Clem. Mm. You know, Clem breaks in geeks. Dr. Ritter breaks Stan. Hmm. She literally breaks his pride because not drinking was a point of pride for him. And when he takes that first drink, ooh, that is the satisfaction of her breaking that man's pride because now he is going back on one of his fundamental values and Interesting. he is now contradicting himself. Yes. So we, we get to witness Stan being broken on one stance and we end the movie knowing that he's going to be broken again. That is so interesting. Yeah. He, mm. That That is the first step for him taking that drink. And so, yeah, she kind of just starts the process that will be concluded by the new carnival owner and his and his new geek that he breaks in. That's so interesting. I mean, hubris is interesting, and I find that we talk about it a lot on this podcast. It's such a common theme in horror, right? Like, Stan, mm-hmm. uh, Stan's mentalism can be substituted for Audrey 2 or The Lighthouse's Lamp or Black Swan's uh, quest for perfection it it sort of pops up in a lot of different movies in a lot of different ways sometimes it's an object and sometimes it's a it's a goal um i i, f- I found it interesting that over that two-year time gap stan's personality changes so abruptly like you mentioned before yeah he's so uh understated and and he's quiet he doesn't really say a lot people sometimes talk to him and he just sort of like abides by whatever they say but he doesn't really say much he nods along and he kind of reminds me of the main character in Nope in that way, actually. He just sort of oh yeah doesn't say much, doesn't really make a whole lot of eye contact and, and lets the world happen around him. And then that two-year jump happens and he's it 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 end that timeline ends with him like making a promise to Molly that he's gonna show her the world and everything in it. And then we really abruptly cut to like a show that they're doing and after it, he's like you fucked that one up. Like I'm, I'm out there by myself up there. This is amateur hour. And, uh, I, I think it's interesting with, you know, Pete talked about shut eye and the idea of believing your own hype, like, like thinking that you actually have the power. 
And it's cool because I think people in all kinds of professions are susceptible to shut eye, like educators and politicians, uh, medical professionals, whatever it is. Uh, and, and the movie actually draws a clear line between carnies and psychologists and religious leaders, all who operate some Ooh, amount yeah. of grift in whatever that they do. Um, and I, I think it's a, I think it's a cool way to look at it because we live in a system that convinces some people that they're more fit for power than others and that it's their right to wield that power in whatever way they see fit. And in reality, the mm. basis of that power is often smoke and mirrors or, uh, like, like whether you own capital or it's an impossibly tangled, like web of social construction. And as much as when it comes to certain professions like medicine and education, you do need people to have levels of certification uh, and education to reach that point. It's also like, I think people are capable of, yeah, like falling into that trap of believing that their own hype and believing that their students or patients or uh, uh, parishioners or whatever it is are their subjects. And I can, I can kind of tell this person whatever they want because I know more than them because I am... Uh, certified yes yes exactly i am a learned individual i yes. know better and i think yeah i think i agree i think we see that exactly with stan because stan is a student of pete's mm. right and he learns the trade and therefore he thinks he's better than everyone because he's learned this trick and this <laughs> he's literally learned a new language like that's it that's that's what he's done. He has learned a language. Yeah. And like he he uses that language to his advantage. Um I like I I fucking love hubris. Like I <laughs> I think it is I think it is so fascinating. In real right? life or because, stories? Uh well stories but also kind of in real life cuz like you know we see we see the stories of hubris in real life in people like, uh, fucking, uh, oh, who, who was the crack smoking mayor? Oh, Rob Ford. Rob Ford. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Rob Ford. Like we, we see this right where people think they are invincible, right? He comes from a political family, you know, he's born into it. He schmoozes his way to the top. You know, he is in one of these most powerful situations. And yet, you know, he falls prey to these vices, you know, and allows himself to be caught on camera smoking crack like that, you know, and, and it and it brings up this fall for grace. And that's similar to what happens with Stan, where he thinks he's above it falls prey to the vice of drinking mm -hmm. and everything comes tumbling down. And I like, I especially love hubris and stories because it usually gives you a character who is kind of unlikable. Um, and you get to like watch in horror as this character is totally oblivious to what is happening uh, well, you as the audience can see the signs, right? And hubris sets people up for such a big fall. Like, uh, Stan says, you know, he didn't see the line until after he'd crossed it. And I think that really hits home because they're blinded by their hubris. And we go so far and push ourselves to such extremes 
that we don't see we've crossed a line until we can look back with hindsight. And I think it's interesting because, you know, the people who don't have, you know, this excessive hubris, they are the overly cautious ones who see the line way ahead of time and avoid crossing it. But those are the people who remain average, right? Because they don't push themselves to even get close to that line. Mm. And I think it's the really exceptional people who push themselves to get really close to that line. And it's the hubristic people that will push themselves right beyond that line and fall. Like this story, this story reminds me a lot of the story of Oedipus, um, Mm. Oedipus Rex, because his story is all about hubris um you know and i like i remember one of my university professors um who was like a classics professor and he was the one who was teaching us oedipus and he was like i love rereading this play and because every time i reread this play i read it from a new perspective hmm. and he was saying The most recent reading for this class, I read it like a noir novel where Oedipus is a detective in his own story of figuring out what's going on in his life. So we have Oedipus who, you know, he gets this um, oracle told to him that he will end up killing his father and like sleeping with his mother. And (laughs) so he does literally everything in his path to avoid doing that. But by resisting his fate, he actually drives himself right into his fate. And it's because of that hubris of thinking he avoided his fate in the beginning that he really can totally fall for it in the end. Hmm. And I, I honestly think we see something pretty similar with Stan, Right. Like we see this with, you know, instead of an oracle telling him his fate, he sees his fate through his father and stepfather, you know, his father, who is the alcoholic and through his stepfather, who is the dishonest preacher and grifter Stan. Yeah, the grifter and Stan does everything in his path to avoid becoming like these two men. But by doing that and thinking he's avoided it by being like, oh, I never drink. And, you know, oh, I don't believe in religion. He just pushes himself closer and closer and closer to that line while blinding himself with his hubris and pride, uh, such so that he doesn't even see that he is walking down the exact same line that his father and stepfather did until he is at the very end where it's like, (laughs) Oh shit. I I done and geeked it up. I I think that aspect of trying to avoid the fate that is sort of like you know destined for him or drawn out for him. Uh I I think it's really interesting cuz I I think it ties into something else I wanted to talk about the the desire and the fear of being known. I think one of the things that this movie deals with is people clocking you like people noticing things about your appearance and the way that you carry yourselves in the world and using that to determine aspects about who you are um 
there, there's a line that Pete says, people are dying to tell you about themselves. Like that he, he starts doing this thing where he looks at Stan's watch and he goes, oh, okay, you know, you've got a watch. This probably belonged to your dad. And that means that you don't have a good relationship with your dad because something about men, there's always a pain in their life. And it's usually the old man. If it's a, if it's a young enough man. Um, mm-hmm. So Stan's grift that he adopts from Pete revolves around seeing what people tell you about themselves in the everyday aspects of their life. Uh, and a lot of these techniques boil down to st- to observation, but also stereotyping, right? Like a, like what I said about Pete, there's always a ghost in someone's past for men. It's usually the old man. Ba-boom. Um, so, so Stan loves the spotlight, but he hates being seen. Uh, like he loves mm. clocking others, but he hates being clocked. Uh, with Pete and with Ritter, he's incredibly uncomfortable when he realizes he accidentally communicates his daddy issues and his past shame and things like that, right? Um, yeah. So I, I think that's so interesting because, yeah, he's trying to hubristically avoid his fate, but he also just doesn't want to talk about his his past in that same way. He, he wants to only engage with the right now. He doesn't want to talk about where things were or where he will end up. Um and yeah, like, I, I think that this is also something that's relatable to a queer audience, right? Like we want to have pride, we want to be yeah. visible and we want to be in community, but there are dangers which necessitate hiding and in despairing situations, we don't want to fulfill stereotypes. Uh, and, and the geek is the zenith of um, that, that like that desire to not be known. Like, it's like, I don't want you to stereotype me and think that you know me just because I, am a certain way because I'm this this freak that you think I am. The tragedy of the geek that I was talking about earlier is the geek is fully known. Once they take your humanity yeah. away, there's nothing to know about the geek. He's this dude who is strung out and addicted and bites heads off chickens. That's that's who he is now. There's, there's no humanity left in him. Uh, once they put him in a situation where you either bite the heads off chickens in your cage or I club you on the head and you die... Um, Mm-hmm. so i find like yeah i don't know just something about that really like hits home you know he doesn't want to be known but he ends up being put in the situation where there's there's no humanity left and there's nothing to know about him yeah like stan is rather interesting because as a showman i think he he wants to not only fulfill the role but he wants to become the role of the mentalist. He doesn't want to be Carlisle Stanton. He wants to be this mentalist. He doesn't want to have a past. He doesn't want to have a future. He wants to have a present. And he wants to have a gift. And he doesn't want to talk about himself. He doesn't want to talk about the details of himself. Mm -hmm. But instead, all he wants to talk about is the details of other people. Right? And I think Stan, ultimately, ironically, by becoming a geek himself, he is getting his wish where the geek doesn't have a past. The geek doesn't have any details about himself to be talked about. The geek is a stereotype. The geek is an archetype. He leaves behind everything he once was, all of the pain of being a man, you know, to 
and this is a fucking Avenged Sevenfold lyric, but like, <laughs> leave behind the pain of being a man and like make a beast out of yourself. Like, hmm. that's literally what he does. Like, he tries to do that by becoming a mentalist and like leave behind the past, you know, and like just live out this kind of archetype. But he only will fully be able to do that as the geek, where. Like, the thing about being the mentalist is that people are interested in you and they're interested in who you are, which is where Dr. Ritter comes in, right? She's not interested in having Stan read her and tell her things about herself. She's interested in having him tell her things about himself, which no one else has ever been interested in before. And he's super uncomfortable with it, right? Like, he, as you were saying, he doesn't want that attention, yeah, but he gets that attention, whereas as the geek, he will get all the attention, but no one will ever want to know who he is because they don't care because he's not a person. The mentalist, he's a person. The geek, uh-uh, not a person. Now, I, I also found this pretty funny um where like you're talking about how like stan loves clocking others but hates being clocked yeah um and i like i remember hearing like a story about sigmund freud and how like you know he's like famous for like analyzing people's dreams and like telling them about themselves but he couldn't analyze his own self for shit like, he had this dream about giving injections to, like, his assistant or secretary or something and, like, giving her these injections. And... Yeah, really giving it was, to like, her. Pontif- yeah, yeah. And he was, like, <laughs> pontificating about, like, what it might mean. And people were like, dude, it is obvious that you just want to have sex with her. And he's like, no, no way, no way. Like, every everyone else's dreams are about phallic things and wanting to have sex with people but but, but right. not me not me <laughs> i'm i'm the one who came up with it i'm i'm infallible like i i i can't be read with my own book no way like i i'm different than all of you you know like this this hubris right yeah i was gonna say talk about hubris i uh back, back on my old youtube channel um, people, if anyone stuck around from that, they'll remember. I did a whole video about Sigmund Freud and how I didn't like him. And uh, one, oh, yeah. <laughs> one of the things I said is he has all these theories about like, you know, everyone, uh, everyone wants to bang their own mom. Everyone. Yeah. We all have that. <laughs> and to me, I'm like, why didn't anyone call him out on that? I don't <laughs> completely off topic, but it's just like. I, I can't understand how a reputable psychologist was just like, we all want to bang our mothers. And I don't, no one was in the room who was just like, no, no, bro, that's just you. <laughs> like, bro, that's just you. You're projecting. That's, yeah. <laughs> Your experiences are not universal. Yeah. But I mean, like, it, it all relates back to Oedipus, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's, it, it may not be this universal experience for everyone. But it is a relatable experience for people with excessive pride. Yeah. Which I think goes back to our mama's boys, you know, like. Oh, yeah. They, yeah, who are like spoiled and like 
taught that they're the ones who own the world and like who are entitled and you know entitlement comes before the fall right yeah and i think like that was something i was going to say earlier when we were talking about hubris like you know we were saying how it's like a really common theme in horror and i think like it's a really satisfying narrative like and again in the same way that macbeth is where you get to watch someone who has all of this like reckless ambition wants to amass power and doesn't really care who he hurts in the meantime. Uh, like Macbeth and, and Stanton have that in common. A lot of Shakespeare today between Oedipus and Macbeth <laughs> and whatnot. Um, yeah. And I mean, he talks to ghosts like Hamlet too. Uh, <laughs> but there are these characters who are so lustful for power that they'll do anything to grab it and they don't care who they hurt on the way. And it's really satisfying to see this narrative come with a, with a fall at the end, right? To be like, well, you can't just act like that. It won't turn out well for you. Um, and in real life, it doesn't work that way, right? Like, I don't know. Like, Rob Ford yeah. is one example that you could point to where he did have a, a dramatic fall and uh, died tragically uh, af after taking some of those actions. But, like, I don't know. You look at someone like Elon Musk, like... He's like the epitome mm -hmm. of privilege and entitlement, but that's someone who can make all the bad decisions in the world and continue to fail upwards and continue to act like a, a reckless ambitionist and people will still worship the ground that he walks on for it. And I think that's one of the reasons that stories are so satisfying, right? Is because we can tell ourselves essentially a fable. Like if you keep acting like an mm -hmm. asshole, it's going to catch up to you. And uh, in the real world, if you have enough capital, you can just keep acting like an asshole and you can lose more wealth in one day than anyone has in human history. And you'll still be like one of the top five wealthiest people in the world because you've just, Jesus. you've already got the capital. It's fine. You're good. So. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I think, I think one of the things that I really like about Nightmare Alley that's actually very different uh, from, like, the Oedipus story, is in the Oedipus story, like, the women suffer too. Mm. And they suffer from knowing and knowledge. Mm. Whereas what we see in Nightmare Alley is the women actually do pretty okay for themselves. Like, we have Madame Zena, who we see later, she's still performing, She's doing her thing. Yeah. You know, she may have lost her husband. She may have lost her assistant in Stan. But, like, when Stan is a homeless alcoholic, he reads an article that shows, you know, Madame Zena's, she's still doing her thing. She's doing well for herself. So she was not dragged down by the alcoholics and grifters in her life. Nor was Molly... Yeah, I right. like that. I like that Molly gets that opportunity to walk away from him and, and say that she doesn't need him and just kind of go her own way. I like that for her. And Zena even tries to warn him. Like she gives him one final time not to do the spook show. Um, yeah, and he does not heed it. And I really like about it that she just she used the trick on him. Right? She says, "Don't do the spook show." And he's like, "What are you talking about?" She, oh, like Molly told you about the spook show, and she was just like. No, I just knew 
from the way that you're acting that you're considering doing it. And so she clocks him one last time. I feel like that's the last time we really see her use her, um, her, her ability, right? Like her, her ability to cold read people. Um, yeah. I, I found that so like, fascinating. She tries to use her powers for good. He just doesn't listen. Yeah. Like Zena is such a good contrast to Stan because yeah. she like literally as you said she uses her powers for good and Stan uses his powers for evil and she is good at it and has the talent and her and Pete were doing it for a while and then Pete sort of fell off but like i i don't get any uh i don't get the vibe from her at all that she's unhappy with life at the 10 in 1 circus right like i think she's perfectly happy yeah. to just do her little show make whatever she makes from the audience, also run the bathhouse on the side. Like, mm -hmm. that's that's what she does. She seems chill about it. She doesn't seem like she really, like, she doesn't have what uh, what Pete and Stanton have where they want to go become these international stars. Like, Pete was always talking about Paris, about yeah. a trip that they took to Paris one time, and he had this sort of, like, um, Francophile air about him where he would just sort of sometimes drop little French words <laughs> and things. And I think that sort of shows like the remnants of his ambition. Like he was looking back on a time when he was more successful and uh, yeah. had more means to, uh, to do more things. And he sort of lives in the past in that way where Xena is just sort of, just, it's a living. She does what she does. She's Madam Xena. Mm -hmm. She headlines the 10 and one. That's life. Yeah. So yeah, like I think she's a, She's a foil to Stan, and and so is Pete, in in very different yeah. ways. Their contrast is is neat. And I think I think she's also a good foil to Doctor Ritter, right? Because like both of them are successful women. Yeah, you know they both can read Stan like a fucking book. <laughs> yeah, and Zena does it to try and help him, right? And her motivation is more so to help Molly, right? Because Molly will be dragged down with Stan. So Xena reads him to help him, whereas Dr. Ritter reads him to pull him apart and break him. And we know, like, we know from Dr. Ritter's, like, final lines to him when she pulls out the gun and she's like, Am I powerful enough for you now? Am I powerful? <laughs> like, getting back at, like, to the very first conversation that they had when uh, Stan had been explaining his trick to Dr. Ritter, and he was like, this is how I cold-read you. Oh, you want power. That's why you carry a gun around with you. You want to be powerful. And yeah. him trying to read her. And I love how she is a fucking vindictive bitch. She is. Like, yeah. Yeah. Even when she was like, Stan, don't go. I love you. And he was like, what did you just say? And she was like, Ooh, did I oversell it? And I was like, Ooh, girl. She, it's so funny. Cause she almost just straight up gets away with framing him. Like she still does, but like, it's almost so much cleaner than it ended up being. Um, yeah. But yeah, like their first interaction, like I mentioned in the summary, she comes up, she comes to his show, disrupts the performance. He responds completely like he goes way too hard. 
he didn't just sort of get his show back on track. He decided to just eviscerate her in front of everybody. And he was talking about like the fact that you own this gun means you have dark thoughts about yourself when you're alone at night and just completely like embarrasses her, humiliates her in front of all these people and exposes like some surely some deep, dark truth about her. And mm-hmm. I like that she goes, oh, you're going to bring it up to 10. I'm going to bring it up to 11. I'm going to ruin your entire <laughs> fucking life over the span of months <laughs> over this. Yeah. Like he overreacted and she over overreacted. And uh, it ends up with him where he ends up at the end of the movie because she will not be disrespected like that. And I, I do love no that. No way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she put him in his fucking place. Like, she was like, you're a grifter? You know what? I'm a better grifter. Okay, honey? Yeah. It's like, and talk about pride. Like, and I guess that's another aspect of like, she has so much hubris and pride and she gets away with it at the end because she's just simply better at it than him. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was more careful with her hubris and how she wields it 100 percent um you mentioned how how the women kind of uh turn out okay at the end of this movie um i i decided to look up if the how how the novel and the the 1947 movie differ from this movie um similar to how we did with little shop of horrors um so a, a lot of things happen the same as you can imagine throughout but uh in the novel's ending uh, after Molly fucks up the the Dory scam, Stan punches her, uh, and then, like, so they kind of don't see each other after that, which he didn't react with violence in this one. He just sort of yells off that he doesn't need her. Um, yeah. Which, you know, yeah, we didn't, we didn't need that, so that's fine. Um, and then, uh, so the rest of the thing happens the same. He runs off and kind of lives on the rails and starts getting progressively worse and worse and slipping into alcoholism. But he does link back up with Xena, uh, who offers him a normal oh. job at the carnival. Um, but then he descends into full despair when he finds out that Dr. Ritter married Ezra Grindel uh, after all was said and done. He, he didn't kill Grindel in this version, I guess. Uh, and then Molly ends up marrying an alcoholic gambler similar to her father. Uh so, like, kind of no one gets a happy ending in, in that version. Wow. I mean, I guess Xena continues to live out the rest of her days, but Molly ends up in an unhappy marriage. And I cannot imagine the marriage of Dr. Ritter and Ezra Grindel is happy. But I don't know. Maybe she swindles yeah, him out no. of his generational wealth. Like, <laughs> maybe she ends up maybe. fine at the end of it. Um, and then in the 1947 movie, I kind of a theme that we're noticing, like, mid-century movies loved a happy ending and kind of like couldn't resist yeah making it happy at the end uh molly ends up working at the same carnival as the geeked out carlisle and like basically brings him back to health and gives him hope and rehabilitates him and they live out the rest of their lives as sort of analogs to xena and pete which like yeah everyone loves a happy ending but that's not how the story ends you know what i mean (laughs) yeah no i i like this being a sad story with a fucking unhappy ending i like everyone suffering at the end of the story like maybe i just wish molly could be happy that's what horror is about man (laughs) if you're if your characters aren't suffering at the end i don't know babadook was was a good happy ending actually 
True, true. That one was a good story. And so there was there was one thing I wanted to talk about uh, when we were talking about like the desire and fear of being known um, and like clocking people. Yeah, that I find Mm -hmm. really relatable to like being queer and especially being trans and like so I go to like a trans masculine group in the area and we were chatting the other night about how like it's you always like as a trans person you always feel so alone right where you're like you know there's so little representation in the media there's you know so little people proclaiming that they are and like you you're like oh there's no one else like me around here but going to like this group you're like oh shit there are other trans people that exist in this area and not only that you know there are other trans masculine people who exist in this area and we were talking about how like and th- this is a little more specific to trans masculine than trans feminine people mm. but trans masculine people tend to just start blending in with the crowd and like going stealth over time like Mm. you know it just it just happens you know you just stop getting noticed and like trans mask people are even less visible in like society today than like trans feminine people like we have very like um uh very famous like trans women now who are like advocates and like known in you know, social media and like, you know, who are famous, like, uh, especially from like Orange is the New Black and stuff. Right. Um, but we don't really have those trans men icons because trans men are kind of overlooked and just blend in because like, you know, trans men aren't quite as hated as trans women. Yeah. You know, they're more like, oh, those don't exist and stuff. And it's because like, trans men are very good at blending in and going stealth and so in our meeting we were talking about this and it's like oh like we're hard to spot sometimes but occasionally you do clock someone and it brings out these like two feelings (laughs) first you get this like intense joy of like being recognized and like recognizing someone else and like you feel like you're not alone finally You know, you're like, oh, my God, there is someone else trans here. Amazing. But then there's the second feeling, which is kind of this horror of like, oh, shit, I thought I was passing and I got clocked by someone. Mm. Right. So it's it's the similar push and pull of like, I want to be recognized and I want that community. And like, I don't want to be alone. But I also want to blend in and not be seen for my differences. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's such a thing that this movie evokes, right? Is like the horror of being known. Like whatever it is that whatever yes. it is that you're vulnerable about, whether it's gender or something else, like yeah, you, you like I was saying before, you want this sense of pride, but then at the same time, like you you don't want people to know your business <laughs> also. Yeah. And like, I find it really like linked right with this movie. Really fucking ironic that like it's, it's pride, 
like that's that's the word we use mm-hmm. right like being proud of the rainbow community is pride mm. and you know pride is it's it's a deadly sin right and yeah. like pride <laughs> is hubris so i've i've always found it like ironic that our kind of like calling card of like rainbow pride is you know it has this word pride which has so many like insidious connections to it a hundred percent that's so interesting you know i've never i've never made that connection before that pride is one of the deadly sins (laughs) i've Mm. i've never once thought about that i huh yeah we gays are sinful yeah well (laughs) that's that's what they tell us you know now that you mention it that's what they tell us I've, i've never thought about it before but yeah there really isn't like a whole ton of like trans masculine celebrity representation, like off the top of my head, I can only think of like Elliot page and Chaz Bono. Like that's, yeah, that's kind of, that's so interesting. I've never, that's never been something that's crossed my mind before. Huh? Mm. A couple of other things I wanted to talk about before we wrap up. What did you make of Enoch? Because Okay. He kind of feels like this I... element that is like there at the side. And we, we didn't really talk about him very much in the summary, but yeah, like Clem has yeah. this like this collection of like pickled oddities. So there's like, uh, like they're all fetuses of like different species and stuff. Right. And there's pigs and there's yeah whatever else you can think of. And then there's a human, there's like a baby human fetus or, or I don't know what you call it. It seems like it was a, uh, a baby that died during birth and it, and it killed its mother. Yeah. Stillborn. Stillborn. And, um, so, and, and it has three eyes. Like it has like this big white milky eye in the middle of its forehead that doesn't close. And he calls it Enoch and he named it that on account of the Bible. And mm-hmm. he says that the eye can, uh, follow you around the room, like those old portraits and things. And yeah. then Enoch, pops up again at the end where the new carnival that uh, that uh, Carlisle ends up at bought some of the stock from the old 10 and one and Enoch was among it along with the radio that um, that Carlisle sold to Clem on the first night that he arrived at the, at the carnival after he burned down the house with his father in it. So all I can think of is that Enoch killed his mother during birth and then died and that Carlisle killed his dad. And then also there's this eye that might see into your soul. And that has to do with the, with the idea of being known and someone seeing into your soul. But that's kind of all I could think of. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's this neat little like flourish thrown in on the fringe of this movie that I felt like even after watching it a second time, I was kind of like, what was that about? How, how did you interpret yeah. Enoch? So the way I see Enoch is that Enoch is a kind of representation of Stam, right? Mm. You know, with the third eye, that kind of refers to, like, this mind eye of the, you know, spiritualism. And so if we think of Stan as having three eyes, right, he has his two eyes that he sees from, and he's got, like, the mentalist eye on the forehead, you know? And... The difference between Stan and Enoch is that Enoch never gets shut eye. That eye on his forehead Uh, stays open. Whereas Stan, 
Yep, yep. Uh. Follow me with it. So Stan gets shut eye and shuts that third eye. And when he starts believing himself to have these powers and to be holier than thou, that is his downfall. And that's when he really starts to change. Enoch and Stan follow the same path, right? They both start at the 10 in one carnival with Clam, with Clem. <laughs> Clam. Clem finds both of them. Clam, yeah. <laughs> Clem finds both of them and he brings them up into being an interest, right? And being something interesting. Now, uh, sorry, Stan has the opportunity for growth, right? Uh, whereas Enoch is preserved. And Enoch mm. is preserved in the wood alcohol, right? So Enoch is already completely poisoned, you know, dead yeah. and poisoned and preserved. Whereas Stan has this growth potential, but he eventually turns to alcohol, right? And becomes poisoned by that alcohol. But he isn't preserved like Enoch is. Now, Enoch gets passed on from Clem to the new carnival owner as this kind of oddity. And in the process, Enoch loses his story. Yeah. Stan, yes, Stan doesn't get passed on from carnival to carnival, but instead finds his way back to the carnival. And he sees this stable point which is this preserved point of the carnival and all of his teachings, which is Enoch, who has never changed, you know, who has always had those three eyes open. So we could say that Enoch is aware, you know, in a sense, Enoch is aware of the place that Enoch holds in the carnival. Enoch knows there is no advancing, you know, how far he is. Hmm. He is a stable oddity that will forever be interesting to humans. Whereas Stan is forced to change with the times, right? His mentalism act is no longer interesting, right? He is not a stable, preserved oddity. Instead, he must transform to become a new oddity. And we can see that the consequence of closing that third eye results in him becoming a geek right so he gets actually shoved to even a lower status than enoch and i find it really interesting that enoch loses his story between clem and the new carnival owner and that stan brings back that story of enoch and when he's like oh that's enoch like he killed his mother you know died in the womb and the new carnival owner is like oh that's an interesting perspective or like that's an interesting angle. I think I'm going to use that. Right. And we see that Enoch is just the stable oddity and that Enoch's story doesn't necessarily matter. Like Enoch is interesting regardless. And I think we see Stan become more like Enoch at the end because the geek and Enoch are these fixed, stable parts of the carnival. They're interesting no matter what, 
doesn't matter the background story, the geek and Enoch will always be interesting oddities. And so Stan comes to fulfill that role of the geek and becomes more like Enoch at the end of the movie. Yeah. That is so interesting. Wow. Did you... Like, th- did you think that up beforehand or, and, and like, write out notes for yourself, or is that all just off the top of your head? Nope, that, like, I only started coming up with this, like, right before we started recording when I saw your question of what do you make of Enoch. Right off the top and of the dome, like, huh? Oh, shit. Oh. Yeah, right off the top. Oh, yeah. I, that's so interesting. I also decided to just look up who Enoch in the Bible is because I didn't pay attention at Sunday school uh, as a kid. Um, yeah, me neither. Didn't go. Enoch is called the Scribe of Judgment, um, and his name drives from a Hebrew word meaning to train, initiate, dedicate, inaugurate. Which, oh, that makes even more sense. So inauguration and judgment are the sort of interesting, the sort of themes wow, that I'm yeah, getting Enoch from. Enoch is a great representation for like Stan's story. He's also, yeah, writing about it. Wrote in his uh, in his book, he wrote about the corruption of humanity. Um, mm. Very, very interesting, huh? I mean, yeah, like I, I really like uh, movies that put in these little flourishes that kind of allow you to interpret the story in whatever way that you want, right? Yeah. It doesn't really have an impact on the outcome in any way. Um, yeah, but you get to sort of look at this little curiosity and go, "What was that about?" Yeah, what and, was the symbolism of that? Yeah, and there may or may not be a right answer, right? Like, there's there's not necessarily a right way to interpret art. Um, and so maybe... Exactly. My, <laughs> half of me believes Guillermo del Toro had a, a prop built for another movie and was like, oh, fuck it, I can squeeze this in here. <laughs> Watch what I can do. <laughs> I can make this make sense. <laughs> Amazing. I I think you're right. I think he was like, fuck it, you know what? We need something fun and creepy and spooky. I okay. When we're talking about creepy and spooky too, like I do think this works as a like I don't know. I wouldn't call this strictly a horror movie, but it's like horror enough. Yeah, I mean it's either. something of a thriller, but fuck it, it works. <laughs> it's good. Um, yeah, yeah. But also at the same time, I need to talk about how cozy this movie is. I think it's underratedly cozy. Mm. And that's something you notice on a second watch. Like, Xena's house, and then especially Dr. Ritter's office. Like, it is like a New York penthouse, like, art deco uh, office with, like, black tile and high ceilings and gold trim. And this, like, therapist chair that looks so comfy. And I just want... And, and like, there's (laughs) snow coming down on the windows outside. I just want to curl up in a little ball and just... You know? Right right oh my god and can we talk about xena's house where like her house is like super cozy but like it's all like totally open and there's just like a bathtub in like the (laughs) offshoot of a room like there weren't even like there wasn't a door there weren't curtains or anything it was just like here's a bathtub in the middle of my house please use this and carlisle comes up and is just like oh uh, i want a bath and she's just like all right take off your clothes get in the tub (laughs) <laughs> and then she kind of like kicks Pete out uh, so that she can help bathe this man. And then I feel like it's, I, I, I didn't know watching it the first time when he's walking up. I'm like, what, what kind of a service is this? Like, is there a, 
is this, are we talking strictly bathing here or is there and then she just sort of <laughs> gropes him and he was just like oh aren't aren't you a one <laughs> which <laughs> yeah well uh it it reminds me of a uh, have you ever played red dead redemption i have played red dead redemption you know how you can get a bath? Yeah. And, like, Actually, there will be, like, a woman who, like, washes you? You know, I don't know that I ever did that in the game. I think I just washed <gasps> up at the at the campsite. I think I just scrubbed my face in the in the little bucket. Oh. <laughs> uh, no, you got to get a bath in town. Okay. And, like, there will be a whore that will, like, wash your <laughs> arms and legs for you. And you can, like, talk to her and stuff and, like, reminisce about life. And, like, oh, mm -hmm. they nice. do the washing for you. That sounds lovely. And next yeah. next time I boot up the old Red Dead Redemption machine, I'll be sure to go get a, <laughs> go get a bath in town. Get a bath in town. Um. Okay. L last question I wanted to ask you. Oh, and I do have a few pieces of trivia as well. Do you know any magic tricks or other carny skills? Like, if you had to, if you had to make your living at the carnival, what do you what do you got on tap? What can you offer to Clem? Oh dear God, nothing. <laughs> I I I have nothing. I I am. I guess the only thing I have is my charisma. Like okay. I'm, I'm a pretty good announcer. Like I'm that I could do. Yeah. I <laughs> I could I could like whip up the crowd and like you know do introduct. I could like MC for them. That's about it. You can do a little sociology lectures as a sideshow at the. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I, maybe I could learn to cold read people too, cause like my my favorite thing is like whenever you read these fucking posts and shit, like they're always like, oh, how you decorate your car says things about you, and I'm like, no fucking shit, Sherlock. <laughs> Literally everything you do, every way you decorate says things about you. Yeah. Like my favorite thing in undergrad was like when I would, like, go over to one of my friends' houses and, like, especially, like, my male acquaintances, when I would go to their house and see their room, I would, like, judge the fuck out of their decorations and read them to filth based on how, like, they decorated the walls of their room. Oh, no. Because it says so much about you. I feel like... <laughs> After the conversation we had earlier, it's like you'd be uh, you'd be doing the cold reads at the show, and all you're doing is just clocking all the trans people that come to the carnival. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. I'd be like, you have a dark secret. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's some. There's, yeah, what about you, Jake? There's some random dude there, and it's like you're you're actually a trans woman, and they're like, no, I'm not. And it's like, come back in a year, <laughs> clock someone before they're even. <laughs> You know them before they know themselves. That's called cracking their egg. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, okay. During the pandemic, I bought a tarot card deck. Um, Ooh. Because I saw it oh, online. Oh, wait, I read tarot cards too. I forgot about that. Oh, there yeah, you go. go for it. Well, I beat you to it. So you're, you're stuck just trying to clock <laughs> people at your little booth and I'm, I'm doing the tarot card thing. Um, Fuck yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like I bought a deck and then like I I was like, you know what? This is like a fun little thing I could do at house parties or whatever. Like, you know, just whip out the tarot cards and do little readings. That'd be fun. And then what and this is a true story. I 
pulled it out at like a like during a meeting, like a Zoom meeting, and I was just like, because we used to just be like, oh, Wednesday mornings, we're just gonna try to do a fun thing to do together as coworkers. So I was like, oh, I'm gonna do tarot card readings for people, and then like one of my coworkers, I pulled a card and I was like, oh, I don't know what this means. Let me check my little book. I'm going to see what it means. And it's like, oh, it stands for like uh, turmoil and regret and heartbreak and divorce. And we didn't know it yet, but she was literally going through a divorce. Like she and her husband had like just separated and she hadn't told people yet. And whoa. Yeah. So first of all, the cards work. That is some that is some deep magic and you you shouldn't mess with it. But also that just went so poorly. I was like I don't, <laughs> I don't want to do this to people anymore because I don't want to accidentally <laughs> I basically accidentally Lilith Rittered this person. I was like, I just brought up a deeply uncomfortable truth that you were not prepared to talk about and that I felt so bad about that. So, yeah, I mean, so I could do tarot card readings. I would need to have my little book so I know what the cards mean because I don't memorize them. And um, people would cry (laughs) when they leave my booth. Mm Mm-hmm. I, so I would read like my tarot cards for like my sorority sisters and stuff for fun oh yeah and it always ended up with being like they were like oh my god this is deep and i'm like yep yep i just did a four season spread and uh this is this is what the cards this is what the book is telling me yeah i yeah i mean that's that covers it Don't mess with yep, tarot cards. You read yourself. <laughs> yeah, don't mess with tarot cards. My, my hubris got me. A um, <laughs> couple pieces of trivia. One is that it's shot, it's shot in Toronto, uh, which is cool. I uh, I feel like I want to uh, yeah. identify what building like Ritter's office was in. Because if that was shot in Toronto, Ooh. that looked so New York. Maybe they shot some of the exteriors in New York or something. But they did shoot in Toronto. Yeah, they said they shot... Yeah, they shot some in Buffalo. Oh, in Buffalo. Okay, that would make sense. Um, but, like, also, like, a lot of the movie takes place in, like, muddy fields and stuff, and there's plenty of those outside of Toronto. Um, for now, anyway, because the green belt has not been paved over as of yet. Um, yet. Yeah. That is, Rob's brother Doug's working on it. Um, Romina Power, who is the daughter of the actor Tyrone Power, who played Stanton in the 1947 film, has an uncredited cameo as a viewer of Stanton's show, which I think is a nice little touch, um, little homage to the to the 40s movie. Um, and then one last thing that I picked up from IMDb, Bradley Cooper learned how to box in preparation for the role of Stanton Carlyle at the request of Guillermo del Toro, who wanted Cooper to convey uh, through body language that Stanton has had a violent past. Which I think is so fascinating because there is no boxing. Like, he does punch, um, Mm. he punches uh, Glismo, what's his name? Gilbert? Uh, Grindle. He punches Grindle. Grindle. He punches Grindle to death, but that's more of just like a beat down. Like, he's down and he's just giving him haymakers and stuff. It's not really boxing, yeah. but yeah, he doesn't box at all in the movie and they had him trained to box so that he would just move his body like someone who knew how to be violent at a moment's notice, which wow, he kind of does have like a little swagger to him at the beginning, even though he's a little more meek and mild mannered. So mm-hmm. I found that very interesting. He definitely has some swagger. Yeah. Um, also, 
okay, I love like just practical vis- visual effects and stuff. And when he beat the shit mm. out of Grindel and they show him like lying on the ground and I was like, I feel like if you're going to have someone bludgeoned in a movie, you need to make it very clear that they're dead if that's what you want to communicate. And they have him like yeah. you just his nose is like gone and decimated and there's blood just leaking out of his head. And I was like, oh, that man's dead. <laughs> like he got him. Yeah. He he got got. So good. Yeah. Um, I love this movie. I feel like I I feel like we said what we needed to say. I don't know. Do you have any any uh, closing thoughts before we talk about what next week's movie is going to be? Hmm. I I feel like I would happily watch this movie again. Like, yeah, it's a solid two and a half hours. It's a like, long movie. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. Kind of yeah. feels like two movies back to back, like the Carnival World and then the like. I don't know the Copacabana yeah, world, the Mentalist world. Feel like two yeah. different movies uh, a little bit, but it really all comes together in a perfect way. Oh, it does. It comes full circle so beautifully. Yeah. Dear God, you really gotta like some movies end on a punchline and you kind of roll your eyes. You know what I mean? Like this movie mm-hmm. ends on Mister. I was I was born for it, and then the the wheezing cry laugh, which iconic. Um, but like terrifying sometimes movies end on a punchline and it works and then sometimes it ends on a punchline you kind of roll your eyes and you go well that was all right tip my cap to you i guess whatever this one just nailed it like just it earned it oh yeah uh i i like that similar to the scene with the kimballs when uh when mrs kimball murders her husband and then herself uh like, you don't really know where that scene is going until right the moment before it happens, you know? You, yeah. You know what's going to happen before it happens, but only just. Like, you, you don't quite see it coming, which is just beautiful. Yeah, I love that scene. Like, it really, it really does emphasize, like, the danger of spiritualism, right? And, like, the danger of being a grifter because, like you say these things to people like expecting like, Oh, I'm helping them. I'm helping them. I'm helping them. Mm -hmm. But you really never know the impact of what you're going to say to someone and like how they'll take that. And like, I totally get it. Cause like I have, I have said so much shit to so many people over the years. And like, <laughs> you? No. Sometimes someone will be, yeah, like, <laughs> sometime, w- one time I had, like, one of my classmates come back to me and she was like, "I, like, do you remember what you told me, like, two years ago about, like, a relationship or something? And I'm like, girl, I have no idea. And she, like, could basically quote it back to me what I said to her. And, like, she was like, thank you for saying that. Like, it made... Like, it made such a huge difference to me. Mm. And I was, like, stunned walking away from that conversation. And it really, like, got to me. And I was like, holy shit, this is the power of words. Like, they may not stick with you after you say them, but, like, those words could ring in someone else's head for years and decades to come. So, like, I think we see that with Mrs. Kimball. And like what Stan Stan says to her. And you know, it's interesting. There's so many horror stories that revolve around this idea of like, don't mess with death, essentially. Like, yeah, 
and you know like back to like monkey's paw and like uh pet cemetery and stuff like that right like there there are so many horror stories probably goes back to prehistoric times i'm going to assume that it basically goes hey you know death is final the spirit world is not to be trifled with um don't don't go messing with that and like we said this movie never delves into actual magic but it does show what happens when if you you don't need to have magic if you convince other people that you have magic and yes. that transcends their understanding of what death is that's going to result in tragedy right which is what happens to the kimbles um mm-hmm. which i think it's interesting cuz the kimbles are portrayed as like naive and we're not necessarily sad that they're gone in the midst of all the other death that happens in this movie. Um, yeah. But it is still like a, a very like pronounced tragedy, right? That these people would be alive, still grieving, but would be alive if, uh, if not for the interference of Carlisle. And it shows how grief is something that's meant to be. So, you know, death is yes, a fact of life. Absolutely. And grief comes with that. And there's no easy answers to it. You have to, you can't go around it. You have to go through it. And yeah. Carlisle tries to give them an easy answer and it ends up, there's, there's worse consequences than what was going on beforehand. So it's, it's interesting because it's a different twist on the don't mess with death type story, right? You don't do a spook show yeah. kind of, uh, kind of translates to uh, dead is better, like from Pet Cemetery. Yeah, exactly. I, in conclusion, I absolutely love a stylish, elegant telling of a story full of, like, death and grime and, like, scum. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Just, just beautiful. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Well, plus Willem Dafoe. Plus Willem Dafoe. It's, every, it's everything you could ever want from a movie. <laughs> All right. At the risk of me going on talking about it for another hour and 40 minutes, uh, Shannon, you should probably introduce us to uh, next week's topic. What is this movie? I've nev- I do not recognize it. All right. I barely recognize it either. I was going <laughs> through our list of movies and I was like, you know what sounds like a good title? Come to Daddy. So Come uh, yeah. to Daddy is a, oh uh, yeah, Come to Daddy is a 2019 film starring Elijah Wood, Stephen McCaddy, and Garfield Wilson. It is directed by Ant Timpson, written by Toby Harvey, and based on an idea by Ant Timpson. So Ant Timpson is really bringing this idea to life, and I know nothing about this movie. Other than that is uh, a sharp wit. It is funny. It is gory. Hmm. And it is horror. And it has daddy in the name. So I'm happy. So it's immediately queer. Yeah. Elijah Wood's character's name is Norval. Ooh, I like it. Norval. Hmm. Yeah. The brief. Uh, summary says a man in his 30s travels to a remote cabin to reconnect with his estranged father. Interesting. Uh, it's got like great reviews on Rotten Tomatoes too. I see critics consensus. Oh yeah. Come to Daddy anchors its brutal violence in a surprisingly mature approach to provocative themes. So I, I am ready mm. for a 
comedy mystery thriller full of gore and laughs and elijah wood elijah wood's a delight too he's like always he's always welcome on my tv so good yeah uh yeah we love frodo (laughs) heck yeah um all right so yeah join us next week or next fortnight or (laughs) we're not super regular with the release schedule anymore but fuck it yeah Um, we're we're busy (laughs) we got stuff going on leave us alone all of our adoring fans are always clamoring for the next episode they're always throwing pebbles (laughs) at our window they're and saying when is the next one coming out we're dying for it but you're just gonna have to wait because we work on our own time yeah it's almost (laughs) like this is a hobby (laughs) (laughs) so we'll be back at you in roughly two weeks or so and in the meantime follow us on instagram if you're not already and with that we will we will bid you adieu as pete would say all right (laughs) have a good one folks take care of yourselves bye everybody bye